Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, back in June of 2017, there was a big meeting in India of a lot of Hindu organizations, okay, Uh, in Hinduism. And one of uh, the very popular Hindu preachers uh, made a recommendation to the group, and that's that anyone who ate beef should be publicly hanged. Now... This was at a time when there was an increasing, a, a rise of uh, vigilante he, Hindu groups who were publicly lynching people for eating beef. And in fact, there was one 50-year-old man who was hung because they suspected that he had eaten beef. Now, why is this? Well, first of all, Hinduism uh, with all respect to uh, every human being who may be believing this, but Hinduism is, is false. And it leads to bad conclusions, this being one of them. Uh, in Hinduism, there is this mindset that the cow, beef, right? When you go to eat it, a cow is sacred because it gives milk and uh, nourishes children, all this kind of stuff, okay? So it's to be considered sacred. And so what they do is they let the cattle just wander freely with the public. And so you find them in the middle of the street with the public, and this creates all sorts of uh, uh, health and safety issues in their culture. Um, And it is where we come up with the phrase or the term sacred cow. Right? Now, sacred cows, you know what a sacred cow is? It's this. It's, it's a person or an institution or a custom or really anything that is unreasonably held to be beyond criticism. And therefore, since you can't criticize it, you can't change it. Okay? And um, so lots of sacred cows <laughs> when we talk about it that way. In fact, right now in our culture, I think there are some things that are sacred cows and some things that are becoming sacred cows. Things that, oh, you know, you can't talk, you can't say anything bad about that or you can't change that. Um, for example, uh, the role of science in our society. Science says, you've got to trust the science. And you say, well, wait a minute. What is science? Science isn't anything that exists by itself. Science is scientists, right? Human beings who are are doing study and research and arriving at conclusions. And last time I checked, all of us human beings are fallible, right? Can make mistakes? And last time I checked as well, the scientific method is supposed to include questioning and challenging. But what is happening now is, no, you can't do that. Science says this, science says this, you know, that, and, and you can't challenge it. So it's becoming a sacred cow. Another thing that's going on in our society, and we've been probably for a couple generations anyway, and that's, thou shalt not judge, right? In other words, if you want to make any judgment about something being right or wrong, that's unacceptable. You can't, who are you to do that? You can't do that. 
And so this idea of making, you know, that you can't make any judgment, that's sort of like a sacred cow in our society now. So much so that I don't know if you've heard, but in the state of Oregon, there is a move where they're trying to teach the teachers, the math teachers, that to say that two plus two equals four is correct and to say two plus two equals five is incorrect, that that's racist. It's just crazy. I mean, you know, it's just, and, and the idea, but you, you can't make those kinds of judgments. You can't say those kinds of things, okay? So that's becoming a, a real sacred cow in our culture, which is really interesting because that kind of conflicts with um, this other one. And that's that another sacred cow is that you cannot question the prevailing views and policies of the party in power. And if you do, we're going to cancel you. You're wrong. They, are, they will judge you harshly if you don't agree. So they're, they're, they're judging. So th th these things are sacred cows in our society, and they aren't based on truth, and so they end up creating lots of problems for us, okay? Now, the church has not been without its own sacred cows. The church has had plenty of sacred cows. I think in my lifetime, my, since I have come to Christ, um, multiple things. And by the way, in, in the last 20, 30 years, I have heard stories of pastors who got fired because they moved where the pulpit was. Okay, you know, a, lot of, a lot of very traditional churches in, in New England come from a, a Puritan background. They had you know, the pulpit where the word was preached from on one side, maybe a little bigger, a little higher, and then they had a, another lectern or something where they would do the other stuff. And so I, I read about a pastor one time. He thought, well, they, this, we don't need this anymore. We don't do this anymore. So he moved one off and moved the other to the center of the stage, and he got fired. That was a sacred cow. You couldn't touch that. Um, pews <laughs> instead of chairs. That was a sacred cow for a long time. Uh, music styles, right? When you worship, you're supposed to worship with an organ, right? I love singing with an organ. I really do. It's awesome. But once again, people lost their jobs over messing with the organ. Okay? Uh, that's the sacred cow. Um, how we dressed on Sundays. You know, Sunday best. And at the, at the, those days, everybody kind of knew what that meant, right? But when we started not doing that or saying, that, well, that isn't really important. That was a sacred cow, you know. Uh, how long your hair was for men. You know, your hair could not be over your ears or over your collar because that was long hair and men should not wear their hair long like a woman, okay? And, and it was a sacred cow, okay? Now, I just, I'm just glad to have some hair, okay? <laughs> Let me give you a, an example that's very close to home here. And that, look up at these lights. You know, the hanging lights here? I, they're really pretty cool. I like them. Well, when this church was built, the building was built back in 1975, built by the members, the pastor and some people who may have worked with him, but laid all the bricks and did all the stonework. Was, he was a stonemason by trade. Uh, and Joyce here, we got a slide, you know, an old slide somewhere of her sitting on the roof, hammering shingles onto the roof. Um, it's amazing God, what God did here, right? But one of the men in the church made those lights. And he saved the, the church a lot of money, I'm sure, and gave a very nice, you know, looking lighting. Well, 
uh, a number of years back, way back. We find these things, they aren't very efficient. They're old fixtures and you know, lots of things. You gotta have a lot of bulbs and a lot of wattage in them to, to light them. Anyway, we began talking about could we change them and we, you know, we realized as long as that man was here, a member of our church, a, a great guy, but we couldn't change the lights. Couldn't really even suggest it. And then when he left, and, and I don't know if he passed away or moved away, I don't remember, but then some of his family members were still here. Okay, and they were great people too. Nothing wrong, bad about these people, right? It was all good, but, but the idea of trying to say we want to replace these lights with something else, it was, it was a sacred cow and for a different reason, but it's one of those things you just couldn't approach it, okay? So the church has experienced those kinds of things, not just our church, but church in general. And um, there's a quote that is attributed to Mark Twain often, but he didn't say it. Somebody else said it. And that's this, that sacred cows make the best hamburgers. <laughs> and I don't know if that's true or not, okay? Uh, but the idea is that we need to be able to address and overcome sacred cows. And when the church was young, they figured out how to do this. And so the title of today's sermon is Eating Sacred Cows. The idea is, is, is again, it's not so much about the sacred cows, but how the church, when it was young, managed to deal with change. Changes that had to occur that they probably weren't always comfortable with having occur. And, and it, you know, if I ask you today, how many of you in here today love it when things change on you? I thought surely one or two of you had raised. Oh, there's one. Okay. Um, we aren't happy. The only change that we're usually happy about is the change that we want. Right? <laughs> But the, the reality is, is that when the early church, when the church was young and, and doing what it did, it was faced with numerous kinds of things that needed to change. And they weren't easy, but they were essential for them. So let's, let's talk about some examples of these. Uh, in Acts chapter one, you don't need to turn it, I'll just tell you, Acts chapter one, right in the very beginning of, of that uh, chapter, Jesus leaves. Now that's a huge change for them, isn't it? He's always been there. He's always been there. He, he, he died and rose, but then he was with them for another 40 days after that. He had always been with them, leading them, telling them what to do. And if he didn't, the other guys would argue about what to do. And now he's gone. How are we going to deal with this? And so they had to wrestle with that, and, and, and somehow they did, and they... They kept rolling. They kept going forward. Later on in that chapter, they said, hey, we got a problem. There used to be 12 of us, and there's only 11 of us now. We need to replace Judas. And so they set up their qualifications, and they picked a couple guys that matched those qualifications, and then they, they kind of laid it out before the Lord by casting lots before the Lord, say, which of these two? And they end up with Matthias, and so he is number 12. But now all of a sudden, they have a different guy there. The staff isn't the same as it used to be. And I'm sure there's some different dynamics going on and what's his role really going to be and all this. And they had to, to, to respond to that and go forward to that. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2, and that is page 1254 in a Bible under the chair. If you need a Bible to follow along, and we do encourage you to follow along. I think it'd be helpful to you. So Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church in a very special and powerful way, a miraculous sign of, of being able to speak languages that the apostles had never learned, attracted a lot of attention, then Peter stands up and preaches to these folks. And we get down toward the end of that. Let's go to verse number 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Is that good news? Yes. Well, it is. But let me tell you. Let's just think about it. What kind of problems would we have here if between now and next Sunday we went to 3,000 people? It would change everything, wouldn't it? I say everything. It wouldn't change the gospel. wouldn't change the Lord and that. Uh, but it would change pretty much everything we know of as church for us. Um, and by the way, 120 people of believers were gathered in this, this upper room. And, you know, that's about our size. You know, there's, we're averaging in the 70s now, but we have much more people than that who are connected here. If all of a sudden there are 3,000, you know, how many services would we have to go to? If we put 150 in here, first COVID wouldn't let us put that many in here, the rules, but let's assume we could put 150 people. How many services would we have to have every week for everybody to come to one? 20 services a week. And they would be all different times, and you might not be able to get to the service that you want, and, and the people who you're friendly to, they're going to a different service than you. And, ha! Ah, and Pastor Dave, you and I would lose the rest of our hair. Okay? Um, so what happens, right? We see it, it's a good thing that's happening. But it's a big, I mean, this has changed bigger than you can imagine. Verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, so it's getting bigger. But so they had to be, meet in the temple and at different places, at different times, in houses, different places, different times. Because I don't think, based on when I've been in Jerusalem and looked at what the layout for the temple would have been, it would be really hard to have a gathering of 3,000 people and speak to them and them all hear you. So my guess is there were multiple times when people were showing up at the temple. Okay, so this threw everybody's life into upheaval, upheaval didn't it? Okay, it sure did. All right, let's go over to, um, well, let's don't turn there yet. Um, what had happened here on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish uh, people, uh, they had multiple feasts, celebrations during the year. One was the Feast of Pentecost. And so, but people had come from all over the world to be there. Wait, not the, for the Passover, I'm sorry. They were there for the Passover. I, I, I'm trying, I know I'm envisioning, this is the Pentecost. Something like that, Day of Pentecost. Yeah. Aren't you glad to see that sometimes I go, huh, huh? Uh, it was the day of Pentecost. Sorry, that's very clear. But the point is people had, had come from all over the world to be there for this feast. And then this happens. The Holy Spirit comes on the church. They preach the gospel. 3,000 people saved, more being saved. And a lot of these people who came 
all of a sudden they've learned that, that the Messiah has come. They've learned that he's Jesus. And, and, we don't, but, and this is so exciting and so powerful in their lives that they don't go home. They stay in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. Well, guess what? They don't have jobs. They don't have possessions except whatever they were able to carry with them on their trip. And so they have great needs. And now all of a sudden, all of these people um, are needed. And they're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're, we're in this together. And so what did the Christians who did have money have to do? They shared it. That's right. If they did have, you know, things that other people need, they had to be open with this. Maybe they let people live with them, move into their house. I don't know. But it, this is a big change. It's demanding changes on people in the church. Um, it, it got to the point where people, you know, you ran out of money or actually, so they had possessions. So they went and sold possessions to get some money to do this. And some of them even went and sold land that they had. And, and brought that money and gave it, okay? And this did cause some problems, and not everybody really got the whole thing, and ask Ananias and Sapphira how well this worked from this change, right? Uh, it was problematic. But the idea is they somehow rather, they did respond. They, they dealt with the change, and they went forward. We don't see, and it's possible some did, but overall the record here is not that they threw up their hands and said, that's it, I'm done because you're changing this on me. They didn't do that. Let's go to Acts chapter six. Verse number one. Now in those days, and by the way, let me just tell you, in chapter four, it told us that there were even more people saved. It, by the uh, beginning of chapter four, it says there were 5, 000, more than 5,000 men in the church. Men and their Families, that's a lot of people, isn't it? Okay, so here we go in chapter six, verse one. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there rose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So let's stop right there. The Hebrews, the Jewish believers, they had been Jewish and become saved. The Hellenists here may have been Jewish, but they were Greek speaking. These were probably the, guy, the ones from outside of, the, of Jerusalem originally. Anyway, the apostles are distributing. The money's being brought to them, and they're distributing and, and, and making sure the people have what they need and making sure the widows are cared for. And now there's a complaint because, hey, um, you're taking care of those Jewish Christian widows, but you aren't getting to our Greek-speaking widows. What's the deal? This isn't right, right? People are complaining. And, and the apostles, you know, certainly wasn't intentional on their part. It was just way more than they could handle. So let's, let's read here. By the way, let me say to you, when there are complaints in the church, that's hard. It's always hard for everybody. And that doesn't mean there can't be say, hey, this is a, we see an issue or a problem, a struggle. We need to talk about that kind of stuff, right? But let's always try to avoid getting to the place of complaint. Do you know what I'm saying? Because how many of you who have had children or do have children, how do you feel about it when they complain? And, but do you mind it when they come and say, hey, I'm having a problem with this or that? Do you mind that? But how do you feel when they complain? <laughs> That's, I'm trying to draw that little bit of distinction there, okay? But so they're dealing with complaint. This has got to a point where it's a negative thing. Okay. 
Verse two, then the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, we, we can't keep up with this. We can't handle it. We need to be in the word. We need to be praying. We need to be doing this ministry. And, and we, we want to take care of the widows, but we can't. We aren't able to do this. Verse three, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is a big change that they are proposing. Verse five, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, or a convert from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So let's stop right there. All right, so it sounds like, hey, this is great. They dealt with this change well, didn't they? And they did. And, and you know, God led them to do this. And, um, but I got to tell you, I just can't help but think that this happened from time to time. It's like, wait a minute. Peter used to bring me my stuff. And now they got this, whoever this other guy is doing it. It's a change, right? It, it moved people out of what they were comfortable with, what they were used to. All right, but let me show you what happens when, when change comes, when, when needs arise and there's a problem, an obstacle, and change needs to be made, if we will embrace that and make those changes, see, look what the result was. This seemed like it should have nothing to do really with, with the problem, but in verse seven it says, then, then, after they made these changes, then the word of God spread. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Up in verse number one, it says the disciples were multiplying. After they make this change, it says the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Jewish priests who had not believed this before. It is... It was a real, this is a huge change in how things were done, okay? But they made the change and it made a difference. Let's go to Acts chapter eight. So all these people being saved, of course we know Satan doesn't like that and so he, he stirs up problems against them. They, they take one of these first deacons, Stephen, and, and kill him. Uh, and verse number, or chapter eight, verse one, now Saul, who we will later know as Paul, this is before he's converted. Now Saul was consenting to his, to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Wow, this is a problem, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, think about it. you coming today to worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and have some fellowship before and after. How difficult was it? Probably the hardest part was getting yourself out of bed. And then there might have been a little snow around or you had to be careful walking across the parking lot. Okay. What if you were concerned that if you showed up here that the police were gonna come and take you away? Would that complicate matters? 
That's huge. All of a sudden, everything has changed. Now we cannot be open. Now we have to be secretive about this. We have to be in hiding. And he still finds us. They're still finding Christians. And what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this? And remember, all these people come from all the world and they had just stayed. Well, now they're going to leave. Okay, so verse number four. Therefore, those who were scattered. That's what happened. They were scattered. And they went everywhere preaching the word. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. That... um, as they were scattered, they didn't just run away and say, oh no, it's all over with. <laughs> this isn't the way it was. We can't do it. No, they, wherever they went, they said, okay, what can we do now? And what they did is they talked to somebody else about Jesus. Okay? But you see these huge changes that come and, and the, the impact it has and they have to deal with it. And you got to understand that if they did not respond to these changes... There would be no Christianity as we know it today. Even much more so in the next passages we want to look at. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. Now right now in in, in my household, we have um, living with this Amber's fiance from Portugal. He grew up some in Brazil and then we ended up in Portugal. And... um, Glenda and I had an opportunity to go to Portugal about a year and a half ago now. And it's a different culture. It is a different culture. And Eduardo is doing great here. He really is. But I've talked to him on occasion. He says, it's hard. Because even though Portugal's a Western nation and we're a Western, there are still significant differences. All right? And so who do you think feels more comfortable living here in America? Me or Eduardo? It's me, right? Okay, because it's my culture and I'm not having to change my culture. He's having to change his. Well, that is nothing compared to what we see in the Bible that goes on. And that's because which group of people did, was the Messiah promised to? Yeah, that's a little trick question there on you. He was promised to the Jews, but also to the whole world. Okay, but it was to the Jews, right? And that's the way they saw it. He was the Jewish Messiah. And he came and they believed on him. But they had all of their laws, the religious laws that they had to find, Not just the laws, all the customs they had built on top of those things. The way they acted, the way they greeted one another, how they went about their business. All of these things so ingrained in them from the time they are born and when not only the, the whole time they're being taught, they're being taught that this has been your people for 1,400 years. I mean, that, that's a heritage, isn't it? Okay. And uh, so let's look at the problem here. So they saw Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, which he was, but that's not all he was. In chapter 10 of Acts, Peter The Lord works in Peter's life and reveals him and leads him to Gentiles. Uh, One of them, the main one being a Roman soldier and tells Peter to, you know, to preach the gospel to them. And he does. And guess what happens? They get saved. But they aren't Jews. They're Gentiles. And Peter went into their house and he ate with them and spent time with them and fellowship with them because God had made it clear to him to do that. Uh, He felt awkward about it to some extent, we see. But let's look here in chapter 11, verse 1, after this. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea read where all the Jews live. 
heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him about this. So they challenge him, they argue with him about it. Because this isn't for Gentiles, this is a Jewish thing. They're unclean. Well, yeah, so are you, and that's why you need to be saved like them. But let's see. So Peter responds to them, and let's go down to verse uh, 17 kind of his conclusion here. He says, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, and this is like hard for them to say and understand, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And they made a statement, but they, I think they said it like a question. <laughs> And God has granted to the Gentiles life. Wow. They're trying to get their heads around this. Okay. That is a big deal. All right. So but this, this issue you think might be settled here, wouldn't you? And is this a change? It's a change in their thinking. It's going to get worse. Okay. It's going to get worse. Now. What happens now, in verse number 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, that's Antioch in uh, Syria, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. These are Greek people. And it could have been Greek-speaking Jews, but I think it was more than that. I believe it was non-Jewish Greek people preaching the Lord Jesus to them. And what was the result? And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That's great. All set, right? But then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, right? So they sent out Barnabas to find out what's going on. But so this is still news to them. Gentiles. Whoa. And this church, Antioch, is going to be a church that is really the first Gentile church. And there were Jewish people in it who became believers, but it was a Gentile church. All right, now that's important because from there, the Apostle Paul is where he sent out to spread the gospel around the world to Jewish people, but even more to the Gentiles. And the whole character of the church out there in the world is changing. Back in Judea, Jerusalem, and Israel, the church is still very Jewish. But everywhere else it's going, the world is becoming increasingly Gentile. And again, I, I don't even know how to help us understand what this would be like. You know, some, some group of people that we can't even see possibly being God's people. But that's the way the Jewish people saw the Gentiles by and large. All right, so let's go to chapter 15 now. Page 122. So what happens is where Paul has gone and preached the gospel, now some zealous Jewish Christians say, well, yeah, but these guys, they got to live like Jews. They got to become like Jews. They got to live according to law. They got to follow all the traditions. They have to eat the way we eat, you dress. I mean, all this kind of stuff they have to do. And so we see this here, chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea, think Jewish Christians, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa. 
So they're bringing in the Jewish law and this very basic custom of circumcision. Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Let's stop. Do we like dissension and dispute? Some people do. <laughs> I was talking to a man recently and I said, yeah, we were talking about something. I said, yeah, I, I still like to avoid conflict. And he said, now nah, I kind of like to get in the middle of it. <laughs> Good for you. But anyway, so they have this huge disagreement and this dissension and they're disputing and arguing. No, they don't have to do this. No, they don't have to become Jews. Yes, they do. Because look, for 1400 years and Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And I mean, right? Big dispute. Let's go down to verse number six. Oh, wait, no, let me finish reading verse 2. Sorry. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Okay, let's settle this issue. Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So here's truth. This is truth. He's putting into the mix here. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. All right. I think it's interesting how he said that. He didn't say those Gentiles are going to be saved the same way we are. He said we'll be saved the same way they are bringing their status up to the same as them. All right, so that's truth being spoken right into the midst of this. And so just real quick, what is this gospel that we're all going to be saved by? It's, a, it's where we acknowledge that we've sinned against the holy God, right? And our sins have separated us from him. And we're spiritually dead. And if we die in that condition, we'll be spiritually dead for all eternity in hell. And so then God so loved the world, he sent his only son, right? To die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, rise again. And, and to then, if, when we come to understand those truths, that we by faith can receive Jesus as Savior, put our faith in him, and he forgives every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit. Every sin. He died for them all. He gives us eternal life. When this life is over, we continue living with him in heaven. And he moves inside of us and begins changing us in good ways from the inside out. In ways that are consistent with his word. So that is the gospel. And Peter says, we're all saved the same way. All right, so they had to figure this out. And they have their conversations back and forth. And let's just jump to the conclusion here. Verse 19. James says, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. They do not have to become Jews. They do not have to adopt. Oh yeah, I guess we aren't quite done. I forgot. We got one other thing to talk about. So the issue settled, right? Done. Over with. You suppose? This issue was so huge it was not done. 
And we see how it had to actually work out in the churches. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know when we read here in Galatians chapter 2 if these events happened before the, the, the meeting we just saw or after. But it doesn't matter. Let me show the, the, what it meant in the churches. Verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2, page 1338. I just looked at the, the screen there. I don't know how in the world if you found Acts 15 on page 122. It ain't there. Yeah, yeah. All right. Galatians chapter 2. It says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, this is the Apostle Paul writing, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, from Jerusalem, from Judea, the Jewish uh, part of Christianity, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. He, he hung out with them. He ate with them. Had a good time with them. But when they came, the, the Jewish Christians from Judea, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were the circumcision. So now he won't eat with the Gentiles. He kind of ignores the Gentiles. He, he just hangs out with these Jewish believers. And Paul said, I had to withstand him to his face because he was to be blamed. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews who were believers there also played the hypocrite with him. Man, that's some tough words, isn't it? They played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. This is a problem. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And he goes on and talks about this. And really that's what the whole letter of Galatians is about. Does that sound like a fun time? To be in the church where that's going on? No, it isn't. But change had to happen, didn't it? How many, how, how far do you think Christianity would have grown? How far? How, how, how would our church be if we said you've got to get circumcised to be a member? You have to get circumcised to become a follower. I mean, it's just, this had to be addressed, the whole Jewish law thing. And, um, and they did, and I don't think it was easy. I think it was spread over some years and difficulties. But eventually the change was made. And here we are today. Thank goodness, right? So what I want you to see here about this is that Somehow, certainly by God's grace and God's working, but also people believing and responding, when things came, change came, or changes were needed, and, and they had to work through this, they wrestled it, and they wrestled it to the ground, and they, they worked through it to where they made whatever change they had to make, however it made them feel, whether it was easy or not, they made a change because they need to be made, and then they went forward. See, because here's the problem. It's so easy for us to get stuck in the status quo, isn't it? Status quo meaning what? This is the way we've always done it, or this is the way it's always been. So what is the antidote to being stuck in the status quo? We could probably come up with lots of answers and, and justify them and support them, but I'd say to you this, it is the mission. It is the mission that will move us out of the status quo, okay? So let's, let's talk about this. The mission, the mission that God gave us. We have a, you know, a shortened version of it here. 
in Matthew 28, going and making disciples all the nations, teaching them you know, to live as Christians and understand the things that they believe. And so the mission that God has given us is more important than some things. And we need to understand this or we can get stuck in the status quo. The mission is more important than our non-biblical traditions. And by non-biblical, I don't mean non-biblical. So let me just say that right now. I don't have to say it again. Whatever this word says, when we properly understand it, it says, and this is settled, right? We're not going to change these things. But if we have traditions that are not what God has said, and maybe we like these traditions, and maybe they were started for good reason, right? We had good reasons why we started these traditions, all that kind of stuff, but we reach a point where this non-biblical tradition is an obstacle to us really accomplishing our mission as effectively as we can. And by the way, we don't have perfect knowledge of that. We're always making the best decisions we know. But anyway, it's an obstacle, then we have to be what? We'll need to change them because the mission is more important than they are. Okay, the mission is also more important than our personal comfort and convenience. Uh, I mean, we don't need to do this now. We're probably a long ways away, but let's, let's assume that all of a sudden the church grows and let's say we're still under the pandemic regulations, right? And how many we can put in and all this kind of stuff, but we need to have uh, more. We got 300 people wanting to come. What are we going to have to do? Well, by God, we're going to stay with one service and if they can't make it in, they can't make it in. I got my seat right here and I get here early make sure nobody else sits in it. <laughs> no, the reality is we would have to say we need to be willing to have a second service. What does that mean? What would it mean? And if you think I'm trying to tell you we need to have a second service, I'm not. I like having one service. But do you understand what I'm saying? The mission is more important than my comfort, my convenience, my likes. The mission is more important than our personal opinions and practices. Well, this is the way I do it. Well, okay, but maybe the way you do it isn't going to get us where we need to go. And unless you think I'm talking about you, I have personal opinions. And I know it's interesting how many people think, assume that the church, the way the church is and what it does, is that my opinions match all of that. But they don't. I have some personal opinions, and if we follow my personal opinions, some things would be different. But it's not what's best for the church right now. So actually, I try to change my opinion. But you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So the mission is more important than these things. We need to remember that. And so what it comes down to is this, that glorifying God by effectively carrying out the mission he entrusted to us, that is what we got to be about. This is first. It's foremost. And so it's the most important thing for our church, and we need to remember that. The most important thing for our church. Let me give you another quick example. I have people from time to time, they're new to the church or whatever, and they come in and they say they really like it, you know, because it's a smaller church, and, and they like a smaller church, and I get that, I understand that. I like knowing everybody, right? But what if, what if God did a 120 to 3,000 thing on us? Sorry, God. We like small church. I mean, you see what I'm trying to say? We can't be, we can't live there. All right, so, but, so the, uh, this glorifying God by effectively doing our best, that means doing our best to carry out the mission that he's given to us. The, this is the most important thing for our church. It is the basis by which all other decisions need to be made. 
When we have a decision to make, that's what we got to ask, not do I like it or do you like it? Now, if it doesn't matter, then yeah, I like it, you like, then we can talk about that. But if it matters, it isn't about whether I like it or you like it, or I'm comfortable with it or you're comfortable. It isn't it. It's this is going to help us do what God has given us to do. And then this is also the reason why we must be willing to make both personal and church changes. We must be willing. We must be ready to do it. And I just can't help but think, I know there's some of you out there to say, what's Walt planning to change? Why is he preaching this? What's he planning to change? I have no agenda on that. I really don't. I really, really don't. Um, God will make those things clear to us, I think, when those times come. Uh, so I have no hidden agenda, but I do want us to be a church that is like the early church. That God can use us to reach our community and our world. And so we need to be at this place and remember what really matters the most and be willing to make sacrifices for those things. And I say, I put here on that note that both personal and church changes. We've been talking about church, 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 but let me say to you that as an individual Christian, you need to learn to embrace the need to change. Because there is no growth without change. Anything that grows, as it grows, it's changing. Now, it may not be drastic changes, but if it's anything, a plant, a tree, a baby, everybody that grows changes. And so growth, the kind of thing where we're growing to be like the Lord, I define growth as change in the right direction. And so for us, that means change that moves us to be more like the Lord. But guess what? To get from where you are to more like the Lord, something has to change. You may not even know what that is. That's okay. But when you do know what it is, guess what? It needs to change. There is no growth apart from change. And so I want to really encourage us, challenge us. Let's, that's not an easy thing. It won't be easy sometimes when we have to deal with stuff. But let's just be committed to the mission that God has entrusted to us so we can be like the young, the church when it was young, and because we got to keep sacred cow on the menu. Okay? We got to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you worked in our lives. I thank you how you worked in my life and how you have changed me so much for the better, Lord. And how you're still working and changing me to be more like your son. I, I know you're at work in all of our lives, that all of us who know you here today, Lord. And I pray that we would begin to embrace that even when it's hard or uncomfortable or inconvenient. I pray we'd embrace changes you bring into our lives. And I pray as a church father, we would be so yielded to you, so surrendered to you, so committed to the mission that you've entrusted to us that we will be faithful to engage any obstacles that get in the way and make whatever changes you might lead us to make so we can honor and glorify you as you so rightly deserve. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you.